0: The title of our sermon this afternoon is War in Heaven. War in Heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. So as we come back to our consideration of Revelation chapter 12 this afternoon, we're reminded in this text, in particular these verses, of this ongoing war now that rages between the serpent and the seed of the woman. This war reflects a very ancient enmity. Uh, one that began with an assault on our first parents uh, in the garden in Genesis chapter three. And as we've seen through our study of Revelation chapter 12, it's a war that has continued to rage to the present time. The seed of the serpent continues his original assault on the seed of the woman. And having now, now failed in his attempt to devour the child before he was caught up to God and to his throne, the devil is now enraged with the woman and has pursued her into the wilderness with great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. So Revelation 12 reveals to us the root of all the conflict, right? Satan had said in his heart, Isaiah chapter 14, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. And he sought in his pride, he sought to take for himself that dominion which God had rightly given to man. And in the case of Adam, the devil succeeded. The whole world now lies under the sway of the wicked one. But in Genesis 3, upon this assault by the serpent and upon the fall of man, in Genesis chapter 3, God promised a coming warrior skull crusher who would take it all back Right? And that's exactly what would happen when the Lord Jesus Christ stepped onto the field of battle. So knowing that throughout redemptive history, Satan would then stand over the woman, so to speak, and await his opportunity to devour that child as soon as he was born. And in the moment that Satan might've imagined his ultimate victory in the war, he suffers the most devastating of defeats, all of that at the cross of Calvary. Now, in addition to summarizing the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 can really be said to summarize redemptive history. Behind every Judas, there is the voice and activity, the operations of the dragon. Behind every little horn, behind every wicked government, behind the world's systems under the sway of the wicked one, you have the hiss of the serpent. Behind the voice of those who slander God's people are the words of the slanderer. Behind the tribulation of the church during this age, you will find the work of our adversary. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Revelation 12 reveals this war. Revelation 12 reveals the root of this conflict. It reveals a very ancient and ongoing enmity. So then, What are we to take from Revelation 12? Well, behind our physical circumstances, behind our temporal circumstances, is the reality of a spiritual conflict, a spiritual warfare that lies beyond the reach of our five senses. It's a warfare that impacts and influences your daily life, influences our daily circumstances, influences the the human realm, the realm of human activity, and a warfare in which human activity Is only fully understood in light of its spiritual significance. There is a spiritual counterpart to what takes place on the earth. From our study of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, there are powerful forces that are constantly at work seeking to press you into the patterns, the mold of this present evil age, seeking to conform your thoughts conform your beliefs, conform your values, conform your aspirations, your imaginations, your desires, seeking to conform you to its ideologies, to its philosophies, to its ways of thinking uh, thinking, and to its conduct. And in the words of Paul from Revelation chapter 12 verse 2, you must stop allowing yourself to be conformed to the patterns of this perverse age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The visions of revelation broadly, and then these two great signs that appear to John in chapter 12 particularly, allow us to see this conflict in the form of an apocalypse, an apocalypsis, a a revealing or a revelation. What John sees revealed in heaven actually depicts and explains what's happening in our experience on the earth. Actual historical people, actual historical places, things that have their counterpart in the spiritual realm, things that we don't see. How are we to understand the very real trials and tribulations that we face? How are we to understand those events, those things? Revelation 12 Apocalypto. it reveals them. It reveals what we don't see with our eyes. It reveals what we don't experience with our senses. It it reveals those principalities, those powers, those rulers of the darkness of of this age, those spiritual hosts of wickedness that are acting in our age, in our realm. It reveals that conflict to us. Now it's through an ongoing understanding, it's through our understanding of this ongoing conflict that we find really the point of chapter 12. G.K. Beale describes Revelation 12 in this way. He says, the main point of chapter 12 is the protection, the preservation of God's people against Satan because of Christ's decisive victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. For those of you who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sin. You've entrusted yourself to him. You're being protected and preserved by God. You, as we've already seen in the first Cycle or the second cycle of this book, God has sealed on your forehead. You've been engraven on his hand. You are his prized possession, his, his, the apple of his eye. He is protecting and preserving you. G.K. Beale says the purpose is to encourage the readers to persevere in their witness despite persecution, despite persecution, despite the suffering, despite the trial, despite the tribulation. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's concern in the book of Revelation. The Lord's concern as he walks in the midst of the lampstands in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, the Lord's concern is a a preserved and protected ongoing worshiping witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a persevering worshiping witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be encouraged by this book. We We should be encouraged by this chapter to persevere knowing Knowing we're being protected by the Lord Himself and the victory has been won. Brothers and sisters, Satan has been cast down, Satan has been thrown out. (laughs) We're fighting a war that has already been won. So, despite very real and what is, is very painful at times, adversity, we can fight with confidence, we can fight with courage. We can fight with joy. We can fight with hope, knowing the battle's been won. Do not shrink back. That's the message of Revelation, right? Do not lose heart. The victory is the Lord's. And his concern is a faithful and worshiping and persevering witness on the earth until he returns. Well, in Revelation 12, as we've seen then, you have this this regal woman, the true Israel of God, She is with child. She cries out in labor and in pain to give birth. The dragon then, as he has done, as we've seen throughout redemptive history, he was there waiting as a sort of perverse midwife to devour and to destroy this child as soon as he was born and blow up the redemptive plans and purposes of God in the world. That's what Satan was trying to do. But... The promised male child, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, was caught up to God and to his throne, and it was the devil's plans, the devil's purposes, his aims that were subverted. And now, under the threat of violence by an angry devil, the woman flees into the wilderness where she's pursued by the devil. She flees into the wilderness where she is nourished and cared for by God, 1260 days, a time period that symbolizes, as we've seen, this present evil age. Like the Israelites who fled into the wilderness pursued by Pharaoh and his armies, like Jesus Christ who was taken into the wilderness of Egypt to escape the hand of Herod, the people of God are scattered by persecution after the ascension of Jesus Christ and they become a wilderness people now in a time of testing, a wilderness people in a period of great tribulation. We've not yet entered the promised land, have we? The wilderness, and the wilderness is an inhospitable place where we face dangers, we face enemies, we face want, need, and lack. We are a people there who are protected and preserved by God. A people who have had a place preserved for us or reserved for us, a place prepared for us where God nourishes us there during this, this age. And it's during that time in the wilderness that we're fed by true manna. Amen? The true bread from heaven. We're we're nourished. Our, Our thirst is satisfied by rivers of living waters. And we get that from the Lord himself who promises us, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, with that, with that thought of Revelation 12 in our minds, we come to verse seven. We come to verse seven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now in verse seven, we once again see this connection, if you will, between what transpires on earth and what transpires in heaven. On earth, if you'll notice in verses five and six, on earth, we see this reference in verses five and six to the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. It was like in those two verses, we have this, a snapshot, if you will, of the incarnation, the, the earthly ministry, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ defeats Satan at the cross, and then he is caught up to God and to his throne. And while those events take place on earth, recorded on the pages of history, as well as recorded on the pages of scripture, a war then breaks out in heaven. So you notice the chronology, okay? What we see then in this vision of John is the entire created order then involved in this ancient enmity, involved in this conflict that's that's taking place. We see both the visible and the invisible. We see the physical and the temporal, the spiritual and the eternal, all impacted, all involved in the events that surround the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his ascension to the throne. These are events that engage both men and angels, heaven and earth. They involve the entire cosmos and the impact of these events is war, is war. Revelation chapter 12, verses one through six, give us the context for this cosmic battle that takes place on earth in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, then verses seven through 12, Describe that war from the perspective of heaven. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, inclusive of his life, death, resurrection, bodily ascension, places the Lord on a path that will result in a decisive victory at the cross. The birth of the male child and the devil's failure to devour him, his failure to destroy him, sets the stage for a series of earthly conflicts that culminate in the cross. And then the Lord's resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the throne are immediately reflected in heaven. Immediately reflected in heaven by Michael's defeat of the devil and his angels. And verses seven through 12 are John's narration, if you will, of that defeat. While Christ fights on earth, Michael fights for him in heaven. You could think of it as the Lord Jesus Christ securing the victory and then Michael carrying out the execution order, right? Michael carrying out the order to cast them out of heaven. Um, someone said that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the warrior and the victor. And then Michael becomes the staff officer, as it, will, as it were, um, sort of seated behind a desk in a back room executing the decrees of the generals uh, in the war. So we see allusions now to this coming heavenly war during the Lord's earthly ministry. We see allusions to what takes place in the spiritual realm, what takes place in heaven. We see allusions to that during the Lord's earthly ministry as the Lord exercises his authority over the devil and his angels. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12. I want to show you an example of this. Matthew chapter 12. All of these, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, as they are revealed in the Gospels, have tremendous significance to what's going on. We, we can't simply read through those um, and find those things you know, merely interesting looking at what Jesus Christ said and did. They have tremendous significance and this is one of the ways in which they are tremendously significant. Matthew chapter 12, we see an indication of the Lord's work, the Lord's ministry on earth reflecting these spiritual realities, this connection between uh, that which is eternal, that which is spiritual and that which is, which is earthly and temporal. And we see that one example in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. This is one example among many. In verse 22 One was brought to him who was demon-possessed. That Now is is an indication of the the devil's sway or the devil's authority over this world. The whole world lies under the sway of the the wicked one. He's become the quote-unquote God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, and he has exerted his influence in the earth by, in this case, possessing this man, right? One was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, And Jesus Christ, verse 22, healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could could this be the promised Messiah? Verse 24, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They're going to try to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts because he's God in the flesh. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, that's what the Lord is doing there in Matthew chapter 12. He's casting out Satan. He's exerting his authority over demonic powers. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, here it is, verse 28, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And here's where we're introduced to this language that we'll have to consider another time. We're introduced uh, to this language of Satan's binding, the binding of Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ is binding the strong man by exerting his authority over demonic forces and he's going to plunder his house. He's going to bind the strong man. He's going to bind the one who holds this world in his sway and then he's going to plunder his house. How is he going to plunder his house? He's going to plunder his house with the gospel. He's going to plunder his house by calling out a people for himself out of this world. He who is not with me is against me, verse 30. He who is not gather with me scatters abroad. It's a reference to the preaching of the gospel. He's going to call out a people for his name. Look with me at Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. Let me give you another example. And again, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an indication of this conflict that is taking place, Lord Jesus Christ in uh, 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 wielding his authority over principalities and power. Luke chapter 10, the Lord sends out his, his disciples with 70 others also. He sends them out two by two into every city and every place where he himself was about to go, and he sends them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. When they return to him, verse 17, the 70... Returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's an indication of this heavenly conflict, this heavenly war. Lord Jesus Christ foretells of the results of that war, foretells what would happen uh, at his ascension to the throne. Uh, Satan would be cast out. Behold, verse 19, I give you the authority. Now, why would the Lord Jesus Christ say that? Because all authority has been given to him. He has authority over the earth. He has authority over Satan, over demons, over principalities and powers. He's been given all authority. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. And over, does that mean literal serpents and scorpions? No, he's talking about devils and demons. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you because we've been preserved and sealed by God. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Look with me at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The Lord in John chapter 12 is in Jerusalem ahead of his crucifixion. And the Lord foretells of his death in verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. The Lord says, now my soul is troubled. And thinking about that hour, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Speaking of the hour of his death. There are multiple times in the gospels up to this point where the Lord says his hour has not yet come. Uh, his hour not yet come. His hour is not yet come. Now his hour has come. His hour is upon him. The hour of his death. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan is going to be cast out. This is a reference. In other words, even during the earthly, physical, ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the planet. At the same time, there are these allusions to this spiritual heavenly conflict that is going to take place when Satan is going to be cast out of heaven. These things are connected. It involves the entire cosmos. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up, verse 32, will draw all peoples to myself. The Lord says to his disciples, on their walk to Gethsemane before his arrest, that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now think with me. He says the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because the world doesn't believe in him, of righteousness... Because he ascends to his father and they see him no more. So it's a reference to the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It's what takes place at the cross of Calvary. That's what takes place in Revelation chapter 12. We see this convergence, if you will, between what is taking place on earth in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and then what takes place in heaven. It takes place at the ascension and at the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned and seated at the right hand of the majesty, that wicked one is cast out. So war is coming. The victor has been determined. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. All of this represents a final defeat. And Michael is the one in Revelation chapter 12 who throws him out of heaven to make room for the true ascendant king. Revelation chapter 12, then verse 7. In light of those texts, think with me, war broke out in heaven. Verse 7. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, literally, verse 8, they did not prevail. Literally reads, they were not able. They were not able. They were powerless to resist, powerless to oppose. To say it was a war, you might conceive that there was some fighting back and forth and there, it might've been held in suspense for a period of time. There was no suspense to this outcome. They were not able. They did not have the power. They did not prevail, nor a place found for them still in heaven. In other words, they were removed from their place. They were removed from their place. Verse nine, so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now this begs a very interesting question. (laughs) What in the world was Satan doing there in the first place? It describes Satan as being in heaven before being cast out. Verse 10, verse 10 Satan is described as the accuser of our brethren who, who accused them from hell, before, no, who accused them before our God day and night. That's an interesting thought. He was there accusing Job in Job chapter one. He was there as a lying spirit in 2 Chronicles 18, volunteering to deceive Ahab. In Zechariah chapter three, Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord of all the earth and Satan is standing there next to him at his right hand to oppose him. And that's what Satan had been doing. That's where Satan was. And Revelation 12 describes him in verse 10 in particular, describes him in the presence of God accusing the saints day and night. That's an amazing thought. But he accused them before God, in the presence of God, day and night, until, until the decisive victory of Jesus Christ at the cross, until the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, until the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to his throne, until... Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age, which is to come until Michael kicked them out of heaven, right? Satan is described as being before the presence of God, accusing the brethren day and night until the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ was accomplished at Calvary. And until that time, Satan might have thought to himself that he had a case to make. Now, Jesus Christ is seated there, interceding for the saints, and Satan has been cast out. And soon he's going to be damned to hell forever. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who is it that shall bring a charge against God's elect? no one and no thing. Satan has been cast out. Satan has no case. The Lord Jesus Christ has atoned for the sins of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ has made propitiation for them. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He is the one who has justified his people. Who is he who condemns? Satan has no argument that he can bring. He has no business standing there before the face of God accusing the brethren day and night. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made atonement for them. Jesus Christ is there making intercession for them. Paul says, It is Christ who died, furthermore, is also risen, who is even now at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Our sin has been paid for once and for all. We have been forgiven, we've been conveyed out of the kingdom of this darkness. And into the kingdom of the son of his love, we've been delivered from the power of the evil one. So Paul asks, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter as we walk through the tribulation of this world, suffering persecution. Yet in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus Christ having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us Colossians chapter 2 he has taken them away having nailed them to the cross he has disarmed principalities and powers he has made a public spectacle of them and he has triumphed over them in it in his cross Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 proclaims that eviction notice to the entirety of heaven, to the entirety of the cosmos. Verse 10, then upon that great victory, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power or the authority of his Christ have come. His kingdom is inaugurated on the earth. Has the kingdom been established? Amen. Yes, it has been established. Is the kingdom now present? Yes, amen. The kingdom is now. The Lord Jesus Christ rules from heaven for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The kingdom has been inaugurated. We're awaiting its consummation. It's full and final consummation. Some say, some say that this war described in Revelation chapter 12 verses seven through 12 takes place at the very end of the age during a period of great tribulation, the very end of the age just before the return of Jesus Christ. Others say that this fall takes place before the fall of man. When Satan first fell and drew a third of the angels with him, Milton's uh, paradise lost uh, presupposes that view. And uh, a lot of the sort of the variations on eschatology that you hear today sort of presuppose that view. And although, maybe we'll take some time at some point and get into these texts together, but uh, although texts like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe Satan's fall, it's clear from the text here in Revelation chapter 12 that this war and Satan's departure from heavenly places takes place at the time of the Lord's resurrection from the dead and his enthronement in heaven. That's when Jesus Christ is given all authority, when he takes for himself in victory the dominion that Satan had cheated Adam for. And when the enemy has no business in the throne room any longer, the rightful king takes his seat and Satan is cast out. So then, verse seven, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now notice in this war, this war that takes place in heaven, we're introduced to two combatants. Michael and his angels on one side, the devil and his angels on the other. Michael here represents the heavenly host. There's this. Great scene, and I commend it to you. Uh, it takes place in Second Kings chapter six, where in Second Kings six, the king of Syria is waging war against Israel. And it's interesting there. The king of Syria, uh, the king of Syria, the <laughs> king of Syria. I'm sure there is one. That's um, got to be the the tiger, isn't it? I don't know. Um, the plans, the plans that the king of Syria tells his servants in private are known by the prophet Elisha. And the prophet Elisha is telling the king of Israel all the plans that the king of Syria is devising in his own head. The king of Syria thinks there's a traitor in his camp. Uh, Which one of you is in bed with the king of Israel, right? one of his servants says, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And so the king of Syria decides to go after Elisha. He surrounds the city of Dothan with horses, chariots, and a great army. He summons all of his armed forces, right? Horses, chariots, and his great army to take Elisha the prophet in the city of Dothan. And Elisha's servant is afraid, terrified, fearful, sees this force arrayed outside the city gates and is afraid. So Elisha answered in verse 16, do not fear, Elisha said, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. (laughs) And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. A beautiful depiction, if you will, of this convergence between the earthly and the spiritual between that which we experience with our senses and that which we can't experience through our senses, right? That which we know to be true from God's word revealed to us that we embrace through faith, and that which we cannot see with our eyes, right? That it is a matter, of faith, a matter of faith. But that's the reality. That's the reality of this conflict that's taking place. That's the reality behind every difficulty that you face in your life, all the circumstances of your life. There is a spiritual significance to what we're doing here. And we can't just, brothers and sisters, we can't just walk through the course of our life as, as though all that mattered was right in front of our faces. That's not what matters. What is of most importance, what is of eternal significance is that which we cannot see. And that victory has been won. We serve the Lord Christ as we walk through this earth. And we can do that triumphantly. He always leads us in triumph. You see in that account, that confluence of the earthly and spiritual, In Revelation 12, Michael is the commander of that heavenly host. That heavenly host commanded by Michael. We're first introduced to Michael in Daniel 10. A man dressed in linen responds to Daniel's prayer. He's been fighting, and, and Daniel, it is revealed to him that he's been fighting this spiritual and unseen battle with the prince of Persia. And Michael described as one of the chief princes uh, comes to help him. The word there, prince, referring to a representative of the the king. There are those who uh, have made the case that uh, Michael represents our king, so to speak, as the chief of princes over his people. So Michael becomes associated in the Old Testament with Israel, but with the Israel of God, the true Israel of God, which includes the people of God now in the new covenant under our king, Jesus. So Michael represents um, the people of God uh, and is seen in scripture as the protector of the people of God, one who fights on behalf of the people of God or leads the armies of the heavenly host, right? And we're introduced to him again in Daniel chapter 12. Turn back there with me. Look at Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel, I want to commend to you again uh, for a, a deep study. If you want to better understand your eschatology, Daniel is so helpful. Much of Revelation is a new covenant perspective or interpretation on the visions given to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is given a vision of the last days and we see there in verse 1, at that time, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Michael shall stand up at the last day, right? Or at that time, during the last, the last days, during that period of tribulation, represented by Daniel's own time period, times, times, half a time, 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, right? Those references come from Daniel. At that time, at the time of the last days, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be at that time a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Remember, tribulation, great, that word megos, uh, the New Testament, uh, can refer to a particularly severe period of tribulation or difficulty, And it can also be referring to a lengthy period of tribulation. And I would submit to you that it has both of those reference with respect to the tribulation that we now face as the church. That it it signifies a great period of time and also signifies certain periods of very intense tribulation. So at that time, uh, when there is this great time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, at that time, it's told to Daniel, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book book of life. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Michael from Daniel chapter 12 is described as a prince, a representative of the king, a chief or a great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And he is the one, in Revelation 12, charged with standing watch over there, the true sons of Israel, whose sons you are through faith in Jesus Christ. And the vision given to Daniel describes that time of the end, a period of great tribulation, a time when, in the words of Daniel, given to Daniel, uh, a time at which the saints will be delivered. Now, on the other side, if that is a one combatant on one side of this heavenly conflict, on the other side, you have the devil and his angels we've already seen much of that. Verse nine, the great dragon was cast out. That serpent in the garden that deceived Eve has grown up <laughs> or he reveals himself to be who he really is. He's a great dragon now. That serpent of old called the devil. That word is diabolos. It means slanderer. And Satan, that word literally means Adversary. This one, the serpent of old, is the slanderer and the adversary who deceives the whole world. He's described here as leading astray the entire world, causing them to believe what is not true. That's what you do when you deceive. You cause them to believe what is not true. He has deceived the entire world. Well, how does he do that? He's not, he doesn't have a little red angel, demon, sitting on your shoulder, whispering lies into your ear. No, he has a living, breathing person. On the TV, speaking lies into your ears. And as they speak, they're speaking the words of the serpent. Behind their voices are the hiss of the serpent. Uh, They're behind the books that have been written, the ideology of this world. If, If you, for example, did a little bit of reading and looked behind the conflict that we're having in our culture today, the wickedness that plays out day in and day out in front of our faces every day in this country. And if you just look, just um, look into the philosophies, the ideologies that have led up to the conflict we're now experiencing, those ideologies, those philosophies are very old, very old. Um, Many would explain them as the result of enlightenment thinking. I would think, say to you that uh, not just 18th century thinking, but wicked thinking from the very beginning, it was introduced by Satan in the garden. But even the world sees what's going on today as being very old in its development, very old in its origins. And these wicked philosophies, these wicked ideologies have taken root. These things are, these things are manifest in centuries, not in minutes, Right? This didn't just happen in your lifetime and in my lifetime. They've happened over generations. We are where we are because the devil has been masterfully, masterfully working this plan to deceive the whole world. Always prowling around like a lion, sometimes disguised as an angel of light. He blinds the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He deceives the whole world. In the face of Michael and his angels, though, the devil and his angels, verse eight, did not prevail. Literally, they had no power. So what is the result then of this war? Satan is cast out. When he is cast out, he is enraged with the woman. I want you to see a picture of this. This is going to be a text that we're going to look at um, soon enough. Revelation chapter 20. Look at Revelation chapter 20. And look there with me at verse one. Verse one, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Recognize that language? There's a direct connection between Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 12, so if we're going to understand Revelation chapter... This is going to be a text, we don't have time to preach another sermon, so um, if we're going to understand Revelation chapter 20, we're going to need to understand Revelation chapter 20 in light of other revelation that's been given. We're going to have to understand Revelation chapter 20 in light of Revelation chapter 12, and we can gain some uh, understanding of Revelation chapter 12 from Revelation chapter 20, but that's the way we're going to have to approach this text, and we'll explain it when we get there. But in verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Shout out to Revelation 12. And he bound him for a thousand years. What was Jesus Christ doing during his earthly ministry? He was binding the strong man and plundering his house. I'll give you that to think about and ponder until we get to Revelation 20. And he cast him, having bound him for a 1,000 years. And remember these time periods we're dealing with? We're dealing with symbolism in the book of Revelation. So many symbols. There are symbols throughout, visions that are given. We can't come to one place in Revelation and say, now, all of a sudden, that's got to be literal. There are many symbols given to us, many visions here in this book. So he cast him into the bottom of the pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the 1,000 years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Satan was cast out, cast, shut up in the bottomless pit, bound, a seal set on him. It's a depiction of this warfare, this conflict that takes place uh, even during our age. But a conflict that was decisively uh, won by the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. If you think with me, we have The devil and his angels on one side of this conflict as a combatant. Michael and the heavenly hosts on the other side of that conflict as a combatant. Who else is a combatant in this war? Who else is a combatant in this war? You are. You are, I am. The Lord's people are a combatant in this warfare. We're involved in this warfare. And brothers and sisters, we need to take encouragement from this text that although we are involved in this warfare as combatants, we serve the Lord Christ. And he has won the victory. The victory has been determined. Satan has been cast out. He's no longer there accusing the brethren day and night. He's been cast out. Jesus Christ is there ruling and reigning as we saw from Revelation chapter six, Revelation chapter seven. He's executing the decrees that were written front and back upon that scroll that the Ancient of Days held in his right hand. He was the only one found worthy to take that scroll and to execute, to loose the seals and to execute the decrees that were written there. And the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that. And as he's doing that, as his plans, as God's determinations are being carried out during this evil age, God's people are serving him as persevering, worshiping witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the real strong man the real victory, that warrior skull crusher who is seated upon, the, seated upon the throne, all of his enemies are being made his footstool and he is plundering the strong man's house. And how is he doing that? He's doing that through the preaching of the gospel. As he takes out of the strong man's domain a people for his own name through the preaching of his gospel. And where do you think that preaching takes place? takes place on the lips of his servants. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings, glad things, right? Who preach the gospel of peace. That is being carried out, carried out by you and I as we preach the gospel in this world. Those are our marching orders during this conflict. Maintain the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Proclaim his death until he comes. And that is done in the great commission that has been given to us by the Lord. To preach the gospel. But if you and I are combatants in this warfare, we've got to take seriously the charge of Paul from Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. No, (laughs) you have none. You have none. Um, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world, speaking of Satan, but... Greater is he who is in this world than you. (laughs) You're not going to win in the power of your own strength and the power of your own might. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That conflict explains what you and I experience through our senses. It explains life. In the church, in the Lord's church, it explains life as we walk through this world together. Therefore, therefore, we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Therefore, take up the whole Armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We have weapons of our warfare that have been graciously given to us, and they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We need to wield them. We need to arm ourselves with them. We need to take up the armor of God, the means that God has appointed for our own protection, for our own preservation as we walk through this warfare, this world. And we need to fight the good fight, amen? Not draw back, not shrink back because we serve the victorious king. And we should fight with encouragement, fight with confidence, fight with courage. What can man do to you? What can man do to me? That should be a powerful motivation to overcome the fear of man as we preach the gospel, amen? Why would we fear? We fear because we're often faithless, Uh, Lord, increase our faith. Cause our faith to grow. Refine our faith. Purify our faith. Brothers and sisters, we're not to shrink back. Press on in the warfare. We serve a victor. We serve the victorious king. He always leads us in triumph. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We proclaim your death with joy, Lord, with we're, we're so blessed, Lord, to be involved in this work. I pray that you, would, you will find us faithful soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ, enlisted in the work of the gospel, in the gospel and the cause of the kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we would be bold. Give us all boldness to proclaim your word and may your gospel run swiftly and be glorified. We thank you, Lord, for the blessed privilege of being called yours of being enlisted in the heavenly forces, so to speak, Lord, to represent you on this earth. I pray we would do that with faithfulness. That as you walk amidst the lampstands, tending to those lampstands and trimming the wicks and filling us with oil, Lord, I pray by your spirit, I pray that we would shine as lights in a dark place, as stars in the firmament. I pray that you would be pleased to bring in all of those you've uh, intended, decreed to conform into the image of your son, all of your elect. Pray that you would be pleased to bring them in through the preaching of your word, the preaching of your gospel, even by my brothers and sisters here in this church, a little outpost of heaven, a little outpost on the front lines. Um, laboring in the gospel for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would preserve us. I pray that you would protect us as you have done so graciously already, Lord. You have continued to show yourself eminently faithful to your word in protecting us and in preserving us to this point. Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us, Lord, encourage your people, purify and refine our faith in these trials and cause us to trust you more. Take joy in that work for your sake. We love you. Thank you for these things. Thank you for this text. You edify your people through it for your own glory. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening.